This morning we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. We are really embarking on one of the most intense chapters in all of Scripture. There's just no light way to get through this, so you might want to, you know, prepare yourself, gird your loins, as the Bible would say. Also today, during the Sunday school hour, adult Sunday school, which we also call question and answer, before we get right into the question and answer time, uh, we're going to go through uh, the terms, the cast of characters and the terms, and this morning I want to focus on the millennial views. Um, I mean, this idea of a millennium, what is that? Pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, amillennial, what, what do those terms even mean? I think it would just be helpful for us to begin to grasp what those uh, terms mean in light of our discussion here in Revelation, which obviously focuses, especially when we get to chapter 20, really focuses upon that. But right now, Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, hear now the word of God. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green thing, or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had, as king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. But in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we examine what really amounts to be the account of a horrifying event, that we would walk away from this knowing why you've included this in your word knowing, Father, that your word is truth and your word has been designed to correct and refine and sanctify us. Help us, Father, to know the meaning of these things, what they tell us of you, and what the the call is in these words in terms of our own lives. Grant us wisdom, Father, to understand these blessed, holy, and celestial things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This past Monday, a local newspaper ran a story 
with the headline, Drag Night Celebrates, Educates Kids on the Art of Drag Performing. For those of you who don't know what drag is, it's when you dress up as a different gender. Usually it's a man dressing as a woman and performing as a woman with all sorts of exaggerated mannerisms and this and that. A 12-year-old child who a year and a half ago came out as, according to this article, omnisexual, organized the event for the benefit of their classmates and their families, and several local schools were involved and supportive of that event. As I'm writing this in my study, it was very odd that I felt that I had to tread lightly in terms of this subject. I, I don't want, I don't want, and I don't want any of you to broadcast a spirit of personal moral superiority. I don't want any of us as Christians to have a, a disposition of malice. The underlying theme of the Christian and Christianity should be one of love and compassion and a desire to win souls. That should always like be governing the things we say, the way we think. At the same time, allowing and supporting children in this type of sexual confusion is patently unbiblical. There, there's, there, this is not a debatable issue if you read your Bibles at all. I would argue that even in a more conventional, biblical understanding of sexuality, to have a ten-and-a-half-year-old make a decision that is going to dictate the rest of their lives is probably unwise. As a parent, you might want to go look at, why don't you just hold off on this, wait till you get a little older, and we'll have this, have this type of discussion. And add to that, Jesus was exceedingly severe when it came to the corruption of children. You know, so even though I kind of feel like I need to tread lightly when I read that Jesus would say things like, better that you were never born. Better that you have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the river rather than to lead one of these little ones astray. I kind of feel the necessity in terms of the pastoral ministry to educate all of us in terms of the danger of this type of behavior. Now, I also want to add that for years in that same newspaper, I wrote an op-ed piece, probably 70 or 80 pieces over a period of years when my kids were little. And in those pieces, I would address the cultural, moral, and political trends that were happening from a biblical perspective. And I have to say, I was routinely assailed for including in those articles a concern I had for how this ethical trajectory would affect our children. Keep in mind, when I was writing these articles, my kids were like three, five, and seven. And I kept thinking, if this event happens, or if this behavior is allowed to continue, how will that affect my kids growing up? And when I would finish my articles by kind of appealing to the fact that this is, we're not leaving a good world for our children, because you're allowed to comment and stuff, people would be always like, oh, you're, you're just kind of using the children as a cudgel to somehow promote your position. And yet here we have it in the same newspaper. Not very many years later, 
a 12-year-old child organizing drag night. It wasn't that long ago, and I want to get all nostalgic, and I realize I'm not one of the younger people in the room, but it wasn't all that long ago that this type of behavior would have been massively determined, not only unseemly, immoral, but even criminal. This would have been a criminal thing to do, but now it is widely accepted as the norm. And I'm quite certain, maybe not, maybe not in this room, I don't know for sure, but as this goes out in the radio and in the airwaves, that there is going to be a major swath in our current culture that is viewing me as antiquated and as kind of morally backwoods for me to somehow have in my mind that it is not in the best interest of our youth to have a drag night for kids. See, I say that and it seems obvious, but I realize I, I live in a culture where that's really not the case. Well, what's going on? What in the world is going on? Now, I open with this because we need to understand as we study the revelation, the context and consequences of a society that has chosen to reject the truth. All the time, all the time asking ourselves, to what extent are we rejecting the truth? This shouldn't just be that's happening out there. We are to continually examine our own hearts and at what level the world is influencing us. So this is something for, we have to ask ourselves first. We have to kind of judge ourselves first and have our eyes open to see what's going on in the world. Now in this chapter, chapter 9 of Revelation, we see judgment falling upon an apostate people. Apostate people, that means people have turned their back upon the triune God. They've turned their back upon the Messiah. They've turned their back upon Christ. They have done this continuously and willfully. They have continuously and willfully chosen to reject the love and the wisdom and the sacrifice of Christ. They've heard it. They don't want anything to do with it. To them, in this context, in this point in history, Christ was not a rock to be built on. He was a stone to be stumbled over. But we have to recognize this. It's not as if their rejection of Christ left them in a position of moral or spiritual or cultural neutrality. That seems to be the thinking today. That, that yeah, you, you, we don't need God. We'll be fine. The, 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 if, we, if we take the temperature of our culture with no Christ in it, it'll be not demonstrably good or bad. It won't affect it at all. But we have to understand that that is simply not true. The end of this chapter, we don't get to it today, but we need to read this with everything in context. The end of this chapter, chapter 9, gives us a glimpse of the spiritual and moral makeup of the people under this judgment. It gives us a glimpse of the people who've said no to Christ, aggressively have said no to Christ. We read that they worship demons, Revelation 9, 20 and 21. 
and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor talk. Let me stop there for a minute. It's basically kind of going, look at you're allowing that which can't see, that which can't talk, that which has no mind, to kind of dictate your lives. And it makes me think oftentimes when I'm watching, you know, National Geographic or the Discovery Channel, and they anthropomorphize evolution. As if evolution is a person or a thing. They'll say something like, through the wisdom of evolution, or through the grace of evolution. Like, what you're doing is you're assigning personal qualities to that which can't see and can't hear and can't talk. You're just imposing it. And we, we think we're so much more advanced than the people in that era who are like making stone idols or what have you. We have our own idols. He goes on talking about the behavior. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So it, it's not just something that is happening in the immaterial world it is something that is manifesting itself in their behavior. It's observable. Murder, theft, and so forth. Interestingly enough, and sadly, as we seek to extract the triune God from the affairs that we are as a people. I mean, aggressively so, right? No crosses, no Ten Commandments, no prayer, and on and on, and all this stuff that we, over the last 50 years, really in the early 60s, of kind of, we need God out. We are simultaneously scratching our heads at the ascension of violent crimes perpetrated upon the innocent. We see that all the time in the last few months, last few weeks, like just tear-jerking events taking place. Massive, we're wondering, we see massive clusters of conspiratorial theft. Big groups of people just going in and stealing. As we read in this passage, right? They steal. They're thieves. They're murderers. And we also see, as we talk about in this passage of sexual immorality, an abject rejection of the biblical model of what constitutes healthy, thriving, and well-adjusted families. All of those things are out the window. Why? Because the source by which we establish those things have been intentionally rejected by the culture in which we live. And it was intentionally rejected by them at that time. And that is where they end up. Friends, the math isn't complicated. If you remove from a people the reason why you should be good, if you remove from a people the source by which we determine what is good, what do you think is going to happen? Now, we've spent a bit of time investigating the very, very dark religious and political climate into which Jesus was born and lived. We have this weird fantasy that, you know, the Sea of Galilee was like, you know, Hermosa Beach or something. You know, and we talked a bit about it, right? We talked about it a bit. At his birth, they tried to kill him. All his life, they tried to kill him. The environment was a dark environment, full of demon activity and so forth. The epithets leveled against that generation are numerous. We see that phrase, like, this generation. Remember we talked about, on this generation will fall all the blood from Abel to Zechariah, on this generation. Well, there's one more I want to bring up that I think relates specifically to this chapter in Revelation. It's found in Matthew 12, 43 through 45. 
You'll be familiar with it, but I think at the very end, you're going to see something that we don't generally focus on when we study this particular uh, message that Jesus gives, this lesson. Jesus taught, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. All right, so you're thinking about kind of the, the removal of a demon from somebody, as Jesus is kind of be talking about. Then he says, I'll return to my house from which I came, and when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now, we oftentimes just end there. This idea that I, you know, I just need to get rid of the bad things within me, but if you leave it empty, you're just kind of open season for demonic activity or evil or what have you. But Jesus takes it one step further, which I think relates to the passage that we're studying. He says, so shall it also be with this wicked generation. Now, Jesus, just so you understand the context here, Jesus had become famous for removing demons. We read that in Matthew chapter 4. His fame spread. And one of the things that his fame spread about was the removal of demons. Now, again, we often think of the passage I just read as pertaining to individuals, and I think that's fine for us to do that. But Jesus, in that passage, is speaking of the sevenfold increase of demonic darkness, which would come upon who? This wicked generation. We've got to allow that to become part of our Bible study. Jesus is talking about, it's the near demonstrative. It's this generation. What I just talked about, Jesus went around clearing out demons. But it wasn't, so, so you got all these people who had demons, but you're sitting there free of the demon, and what Jesus is saying is, that darkness is going to come back seven times worse. And I think we need to understand that in order to understand Revelation at all, but specifically Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Now, just as a reminder, what we're reading here are the judgments of God, which, judgments of God which brought the old covenant to a close, while at the same time preserving his church by halting their persecutors and oppressors. God is providentially doing this all together. Certain people are being judged, and at the same time, the very people that are being judged are being halted from persecuting the advancement of the church or the fulfillment of the Great Commission. These judgment prophecies, just to remind you, this idea that this is going to happen are conveyed in chapters 5 through 8 by this idea of a scroll. Remember, there's a scroll. It's the, it's the scroll of the redemptive work of Christ in history particularly near history, and that scroll had seven seals. And every time a seal is broken, we're getting a preview of what's in the scroll. We also see then seven trumpets. When we get to the end of that, we're gonna, the, the trumpets go from chapters 8 to 11. And just so you understand where we're at, we are at the fifth trumpet, and all hell is breaking loose. Literally, all, I'm, I'm not just saying that to, for impact. That is what's happening now, we have this star fallen 
And there are all sorts of guesses about who that star is, fallen from heaven to the earth. Some say, some of the guesses are better than others. Some say it's Nero, some say it's an angel, some say an evil spirit, some say Satan, some say it's a good angel, and so forth. We're not specifically told. And I don't think there's an argument that's super convincing. I'm, I kind of fall in line of the fact that whoever this star is, he's a bad guy. I'm going to go, I'll just leave it at that. I don't think it's a good guy, I think it's a bad guy, but I think it's a bad guy in the hands of a good God. What we do see, and again, these are things, and I realize this is not easy material. These are things that we, as we're reading the New Testament, we're reading our Bibles, we see this stuff happen and we just move on to the next thing because we're like, not really sure what that means or what that's about. Here's one of those things. When Jesus sent out the 72 and they came back and they were all excited, right? And they're like going, the demons, you know, we, we, we're, they're subject to us. So the, the, the 72 come back excited about the subjugation of the demons. And how does Jesus respond to that? In Luke 10, 18, and he said to them, and here we see another fallen, right? We have that fallen star that we just read about in Revelation 9. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Similarly, when we get to chapter 12, we're going to read that the dragon, who is Satan, verses four, verse 4 in chapter 12, drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So we see this increased demonic activity at the birth of Christ and, quite frankly, through the entire life of Christ. Well, what can we, can, what can we conclude from all of this? It would appear that there are times when there is an increased activity of darkness upon the land. There are times when things simply get worse. This idea that, you know, I mean, Satan was already Satan, but what does it mean that he thought that he was cast to the earth? Demons are already demons. What does it mean they were dragged to the earth? I don't know about you, but I don't want them dragged into my house. But they are being dragged, and that's kind of what we're seeing here in chapter 9. They're being kind of, the, the, you know, the, the, the picture that we're given here is that this fallen star, who I would argue is some type of evil entity, is given a key, by the way. It's derivative. That he's not, it's kind of similar to, if you read Job, there's activity of Satan, but it's derivative. And what I mean by that is he's not working independently from God. He can only do what God allows him to do. We have to understand, if we have bad theology, we're going to have bad eschatology. If we don't, if we don't understand the Bible well, we're not going to understand well, end times well. And you have to understand this. There are times when God simply sends an evil spirit. It happened to Saul in the Old Testament. People scratch their heads. They're like going, well, wait a minute. God will use evil spirits. God used Satan to enter Judas to betray Jesus that we might have redemption. He wasn't hoping it would happen. He wasn't dependent upon the random activities of the thinking of men. It is God's decree and it is his providence that these things would take place. Now we have this bottomless pit that we read of here. Some of your versions will say an abyss. The abyss is the abode of demons. It's the place that the demons beg Jesus not to be sent. It's the same word in Luke 8, 31. So what do we got going here? 
Well, let me see if I can make it simple. We might compare it, what's going on here, spiritually to a live volcano. And it's held back from erupting. By a, there's a small opening and there's a cap, and it's just being held back. It's being held back. Literally, in the Greek, it's a shaft. Right? And this fallen star comes down and opens it. You get, now the eruption takes place. And we see things happen. We see what we see over and over and over again, right? The sky turns dark. This is something we see quite often that a lot of people associate with the end of the world. But here it's not the end of the world. Right? This idea that darkness is entered into is something that happened during that generation. In Acts chapter 2, if you remember, just so you understand this, and I don't want to overly argue it, but I just know that today, at least in our current culture, because of the popularity of certain movies and books, I'm an outlier on this. But if we want to read the Bible as naturally as we can, in Acts chapter 2, during Pentecost, people were speaking in tongues. And what were they accusing the people, people, the onlookers, what were they accusing those people of having done? Right, they've been drinking. And Peter's like, no, no, it's too early in the day for that. They're not drinking. Something is happening. And again, he uses the near demonstrative. He says this. And let's go to Acts chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. It's a quote from Joel 2. And I will show you wonders in the heavens. Just, just again, let me reemphasize. Peter says, if I, he, I don't know, it doesn't say he pointed. Could, I'm, I'm going to do that just because I think he could have pointed. Because he's saying this, not that, or some other thing. This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Right? Joel's an Old Testament prophet. Peter's kind of going, they're not drunk. This is something Joel said would happen. Well, what did Joel say would happen that is happening right now? And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes and the great and magnificent day. The darkness happened during the generation of Christ. That started at Pentecost. These events happened in that generation. It's a very spiritual thing that's going on here. You get the picture there? The star comes down, opens up, as it were, this, this funnel to hell, and all of a sudden, everything comes out. Right? And it's spiritual. You know, it's... You know, it's, it, people love to say they're spiritual. Have you noticed that? I, I mean, I hope, you know, I hope you invite people to church. I hope you invite them to our church, but just a, a Christian church in general. And if you do, if you invite people to church or you tell people about Jesus, one of the answers you're going to get in terms of why they're not going to come is because they're spiritual. I'm not an organized religion, but I'm very spiritual. But I'm going to tell you, even upon the slightest investigation, you come to realize that the claim of being spiritual means absolutely nothing. It really amounts to this. I am spiritual, and in my spirit world, I'm God. 
it's a not-so-subtle assignment of self-deification. We, you're, I'm in charge. I kind of like it that way. But I'm going to tell you this. If you go into deeper inquiry regarding the I am spiritual you know, language, I think it is worse than nothing. I'd almost rather deal with a naturalist. I'd rather deal with a humanist a Darwinian than somebody who's spiritual. Because in Revelation 9, 1 and 2, we're reading about something very evil and at the same time very spiritual. Most evil things that ever happen are spiritual. To say you're spiritual either means nothing or I'm gonna, I would argue this, that undefined, undefined spirituality may very well be demonic. If you're saying, I, I am spiritual, but I reject Christ, what spirit do you think is governing your heart? Well, okay, well, we have to move on. Because he opens that, and, you know, that a volcano begins to erupt, and we see this cast of characters coming out of the smoke of the abyss, and they have a job. All right, so let's just read on, really, to the rest of the chapter. Then out of the smoke, see, they, that happens. Out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing. Another, by the way, stopping there, um, in chapter 8, uh, the grass is destroyed, but here in chapter 9, they're told not to harm the grass, which is another um, cue in terms of how we need to read Revelation. These are symbols. Uh, we'd, and he kind of plays freely with the symbols. He's like, well, you know, in one respect, the grass is all gone, but in another respect, there's still grass that I don't want you to touch. Moving on, though. Uh, Do not harm the grass or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. I mean, I, I guess in reflection, that might be the most important verse in the entire chapter, but moving on. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions. And there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men for five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two woes are coming after these things. Well, let me just point out, similar to what we saw in chapter 8, there's an allusion to the plagues, just so we recognize, and those of you who weren't here for that, many of the plagues that we read of in chapter 8 were pl- on Israel were the plagues that were on the enemies of Israel. And here we see the same thing. The eighth plague of the Egyptians was locusts, but now the locusts are now uh, on Israel. Israel has taken the place of Egypt. Israel has taken the place of Sodom. Israel has taken the place of Jericho. 
So the judgments against um, those who would oppose the covenant people of God are now upon the covenant people of God who've left the faith, who've walked away and refused to believe in Christ. Well, we have these locusts coming out of the smoke. What is that? I'm going to tell you, I don't think they're literal locusts. Why would I say that up front? Well, because they're wearing crowns, they have the faces of men, they have women's hair, and they have lion's teeth. All right, so I'm like, okay, probably not just normal locusts. So what are they? And I'm going to tell you, this is where the creativity of the commentators stretches beyond, in my opinion, the borders of soundness. This chapter becomes like a blank canvas, just itching for the brushes of innovation and imagination and, you know, sensationalism. All of a sudden, it's like, well, we're not told exactly, so here I go. I'm going to let my imagination run wild. Well, what do people say? Some people say that the look, and again, like a lot of other things, some some of the guesses are better than others. Some people say that these locusts were the Islamic empire. Others say it's satanic activity. Others say it's the darkness of the inner soul. Others say hellish spirits. Others say forces of corruption. There's all sorts of these. And I think at some level, I don't buy some of these. Some of these I think, all right, at some level I, could, I can see this. But just so you know, perhaps, well, for sure the most popular contemporary book on this subject, I have to say, says conveys to us, and I want to be charitable here, but just the most ridiculous interpretation imaginable. One is that they are mutant locusts, like genetically altered giant locusts. And, some, and in the same book, it's like either that, or I have a friend, this, this is the author writing, I have a friend in the military, and he read about these locusts, and he said, I know exactly what these locusts are, they're cobra helicopters. And the torment is the nerve gas that comes from the Cobra helicopters. Now, let me just encourage you when you're talking to your friends who hold these positions, and I noticed some of you are laughing, don't laugh in that conversation. That's not going to be helpful. I just think it's wrong to do this. I don't think that's where this goes. What we have, what we have to recognize here is that we all make, I'm going to put it this way, and then I'll explain what I mean. When we read our Bibles, we all make exegetical decisions. And what I mean by that is we all kind of have a grid by which we kind of come to understand what our Bibles mean. Clearly, this person read their Bible, and then they listened to their military friend, and the grid by which they interpreted that was their military friend saying, this looks like a Cobra helicopter. I don't think that's the best way to read your Bibles. I think the best way to read your Bibles is to let your Bible tell you what your Bible actually means. It's called the analogy of faith. Scripture interprets Scripture. I think that is a very important tip for those who would want to properly understand what their Bible is actually teaching, especially when it comes to difficult passages. So what are these locusts if we were to read Revelation in light of the Old Testament? Now remember I've said, In 22 chapters, there are over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. You're not going to understand Revelation if you don't read your Old Testament. What does the Old Testament say about locusts when it comes to this type of context? 
I'm just going to give you a couple of, of examples. I, w- I, had, I have been chastised, lovingly chastised, by spending too much time talking about what clouds mean and don't mean. So I'm going to give you this, and then you can just do the rest of your homework, but it should, I think it should be obvious. Remember the account of Gideon when he's going to do battle with the Midianites and the Amalekites? Like it's, it's like this lose-lose situation where Gideon's... So you've got this forceful army that you're looking at Gideon going, there's no way he's going to win, but we know the story there. But we read in Judges 7.12, And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. You see what, how it's being used there? There's a military presence... And that military presence is compared to locusts. Just so you understand, when locusts, the actual literal locusts showed up, they would completely decimate the society, right? Every la- if, they went, if the locusts went through your town, nothing was left. And so what we read here in Judges is, this military presence is so ominous that we're going to compare them to locusts. But they're not locusts, it's an army. We see a similar language used in reference to heathen armies, armies all through the Old Testament. I'm going to give you one more here in Jeremiah 51:27. Again, this is talking about heathen armies attacking. Set up a standard on the earth, Jeremiah 51:27. Set up a standard on the earth, blow the trumpet along among the nations, prepare the nations for war against her. Summon against her the kingdoms, Ararat, Mini, Ashkenaz, Appoint a marshal against her. Bring up horses, how? Like bristling locusts. You kind of see, if you read your Old Testament, how much clearer Revelation becomes. Let me read. I said I was going to read one more. I meant now. I'll read one more. Because I, I, I feel like I need to make the point here because you're just going to be like, there's no way that happened back then. They didn't have Cobra helicopters back in those days. But they did have armies back in those days, and those armies were compared to locusts. And I don't have time to go into every last little thing in terms of this chapter. I'll just give you one more, and you'll see. He's talking here about the armies of Assyria. Joel 1.6 For a nation has come against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are what? Lion's teeth. And it has fangs of a lioness, like, just like we saw in the chapter we just read. So what we see when we talk about locusts and lion's teeth and breastplates and helmets and so forth, what that is talking about in the scriptures are armies. Now what army would this have been in the first century other than the Roman army? Just keep in mind, this is not some extrapolation I'm making out of the the closet of, of shadows, you know. Bring, this, is a, this is a lesson that Jesus taught in all three of the synoptic gospels in terms of the destruction of the temple. This is not some side issue. This is a huge issue in terms of accurately understanding the reading of our New Testament. Jesus taught that the temple was going to be destroyed and that there would be a time of terror accompanying the destruction of the temple. Whole sermons are dedicated to it in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I think it would be in John if John didn't write the Revelation. That was his Olivet Discourse. 
approximately 40 years prior to all of this horror that was going to take place in, in, in AD 66 to AD 70 and following, one generation after Jesus, a generation before that, a generation before that, Jesus gave a lesson anticipating what John is writing about here. Jesus, in what I'm about to read, is being led to the cross. He's being led to his crucifixion. Okay, so it's a, it's a dark moment. It's a sad moment. But even as he's being led to his crucifixion, he gives a lesson. We read it in Luke 23, 27 through 31. Keep in mind, he's, he's going to the cross. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. You get that? You and your children. That's this generation. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us. Where did we read that? It's in Revelation. And to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will, they, what will happen when it is dry? In other words, if they're doing that during the heart of my ministry, what, how bad is it going to be when this nation that has been swept away of demons receives the sevenfold demonic activity? How much worse is it going to be? But also, prior to this, Jesus gave counsel in terms of how the faithful should respond when they saw all of this taking place. We read earlier in Luke 21, 20 and 21, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. In other words, you get out of Dodge. And history tells us they did. That the believers who heard the sermon of Jesus all went to Pella. And there were a million people, a million Jews killed in the fall of Jerusalem. And not one of them was a Christian. What do we make of that other than the fact that Jesus sealed his own and counseled them to remove themselves when they saw the army surrounding Jerusalem and they obeyed. And I don't think we're going to understand Revelation unless we understand that. And there's quite a bit of it in the Gospels. It's not just in the Revelation. That was the means by which Jesus would protect those who were sealed. And let me just stop here, you know, because this morning as I was rereading this, and I said when I was reading it, I'm like, this, this idea of being sealed, right? It harm only those who are not sealed. I mean, I don't know, I, that just should jump out at us because you need to ask yourself, does that include me? Am I sealed? And what does that even mean? You know, we uh, baptized Megan today. Baptism is a sign and a what? A sign and a seal. It's this idea that God is going, I'm putting my name upon you. I'm putting my stamp, my signet is upon you. You belong to me. You are mine. And in this case, the benefits of not receiving the judgment in terms of the armies of Rome were a benefit, but ultimately the benefit makes that look like small potatoes. Because ultimately, those who are sealed in Christ, 
escape a greater judgment than any human army can impose upon somebody. And that is the eternal judgment. So we don't want to read this just as some kind of historical issue. We need to read this recognizing that there's a deeper issue at stake here in terms of who we trust and where we go in terms of that trust. So you might, you might ask, Pastor Paul, I've always read this as if it was the final judgment. Now you're saying it's just a judgment in history. I think the, te- I think the context demands it. But that doesn't mean this is not telling us anything about the final judgment. I'm learning about the final judgment. I'm learning this. There is a God who judges. I, I have to recognize that if I'm delivered from the armies of, of Rome, that is nothing compared to being delivered from the wrath of God himself. That is where our mind, there's a, what logicians call an a fortiori argument. If, in fact, the historical judgment is this bad, how much more the eternal judgment? R.C. Sproul was talking about how he didn't believe, you know, that some of the descriptions of hell were to be taken literally. You know, whenever, whenever you hear somebody talk that way, you know, of course it's R.C. Sproul, so you've got to give him the benefit of the doubt. He's just probably trying to get your attention, right? He goes, yeah, you know, it talks about fire. I don't know if there's going to be actual fire there. It'll probably be much worse. He's like, the Bible just uses things to help us understand at the level. I think heaven is going to be way better than the words of the Bible can convey, and hell is going to be a lot worse. So so when we read this, you don't think the people who heard this recognized at some deeper level there is a God who judges and recognize that this historical judgment is small compared to the eternal judgment. Well... Again, I did remember my watch today. We're about there. I don't have time to go into every little thing in this chapter. Not that I wouldn't enjoy that. Not that I didn't actually do it during this week. But it, some of the commentaries on the Revelation are like a thousand pages long. And so you've got to kind of go, okay, I can either spend 10 years in Revelation or we're going to have to kind of handle more than this. But let me just sit on a couple couple of the highlights. The, the fact that the locusts don't eat grass tells us that they're not actually locusts because that's the first thing the locusts would eat. It's judgment on people at this point, not on the terrain. Five months, we saw that a couple of times. That, by the way, is generally the lifespan of a locust, just kind of for whatever that's worth. But there would be no killing at this time, only torment like a scorpion sting. And I would argue that this, and again, this is, there's a, it's a little bit speculative, but I think it makes sense. This is the period leading up to the judgment of the destruction of the temple and the million deaths that I just told you about. History tells us that Gessius Floris, who was a procurator of Judea, of Judea it says that he tormented the citizens of Jerusalem for five months, which began the Jewish war in 66. Now, that, again, that's extra biblical. There might have been somebody else or some other thing. But we have, is, we have a, a, a shorter period of time where there is tormenting and not killing that's taking place that leads to that final judgment. 
Men will seek death and not find it. That just, and again, as, as I said when we started, you kind of got to gird your loins because there's just no easy way. People would rather be dead than go through what they're going through. At the same time, at the end of this chapter, we see that none of this led them to repentance. It, let's never underestimate the hardness of the human heart and its need for divine intervention. As an apologist, people will keep asking me for evidence, evidence, evidence. I don't, I don't have a problem giving evidence. There's bags of evidence. But you know, the guys guarding the tomb of Jesus, they saw him resurrected. That didn't seem to work for them. I'm not all that interested in giving evidence because what we need is the gospel. The gospel is the means by which God takes our hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh. It is something divine. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. And again, that doesn't mean I don't have that conversation, but in the back of my mind, I'm just thinking we need to get to the gospel here. It's almost odd how the names Abaddon, which means destruction in Hebrew, and Apollyon, which means destroyer in Greek, are added. It's one person, and he's said to be king over them. So they've got a king. Now, just again, I, I'm not given to conspiracies. I just don't. My mind doesn't operate that way. I, I feel like I remember taking classes on this. Conspiracies are very hard to pull off and even harder to prove. I think they do exist. I'm not saying I don't believe they, but the idea, you know, some group in a dark room somewhere with funny masks on controlling what? Western civilization. Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. I don't really know. But what we read here is that evil is not random. There is a mind behind evil. It, a, a mind full of madness, to be sure, but a mind nonetheless. There is a mind, and we should not underestimate the capabilities of the darkness of that mind that he talks about here as Abaddon or Apollyon. There's, they have a king. All this craziness is taking place that we're beginning to see in our society at some level. And you're looking at it going, well, we just need a better homeless plan or we need a, you know, a better this or a better that. Not recognizing that there is a mind behind the destruction of men, the destruction of our souls. And the answer in terms of how we respond to that mind is not for us to come out, somehow go onto a platform all by ourselves with some kind of sword and do battle on our own. The means by which that darkness is dealt with is by us remaining in the faith, by us trusting in the words of Christ and in Christ himself. That is the means by which this defeated enemy remains defeated in terms of our life. Because the devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he will come into the church and he will seek, seek to do it there, and the means by which we do this is not somehow incantations or some book you read on how to beat Satan. It is trusting in Christ. It is feeding upon Him. That's what these seven churches wouldn't do. Or at least they were in danger of losing. They were being influenced by the culture by which they were surrounded. And they were becoming heretics and they were becoming immoral and it was within the church. Revelation is written to seven churches in danger of being on the wrong side of all of this judgment. And the message to them from the words of Jesus is, you need to believe in me. It got very, very evil. 
If you read Josephus, who was a Jewish historian who wrote the Jewish War, if you read him, and he wasn't even a Christian, about what that looked like, let me tell you right now, again, we don't have time to get into it, I'm going to read one excerpt from that. You will think you're reading a commentary on the Revelation. He records just how dark things got with these words. He's talking about the madness of that particular generation with their insatiable hunger. So think about what's going on in terms of the fall of Jerusalem. And it's not just the Romans now. It's even Israelites who are turning on each other. It's just, like I said, the name of the sermon. All hell is breaking loose. Uh, Do we have, by the way, before I read this, do we have the eyes to see it when it is encroaching upon us? Because, as I've said many times, the road to hell is not a cliff. The road to hell is, this isn't that bad, this isn't that bad, this isn't that bad, and all of a sudden you look and you realize you are so far off the trail. The Word of God has not been a lamp to your feet at all, but something else has been guiding your path. Anyways, Josephus writes, with their insatiable hunger for loot, they ransacked the houses of the wealthy, murdered men and violated women for sport. They drank their spoils with blood, And from mere satiety, they shamelessly gave up themselves to effeminate practices, plating their hair and putting on women's clothes. It reminds me of parades I've seen here in L.A. Drenching themselves with perfumes and painting their eyelids to make themselves attractive. Remember, he's talking about they had hair like women. They copied not merely the dress, but also the passions of women, devising in their excess of licentiousness unlawful pleasures in which they wallowed as in a brothel. Thus, they entirely polluted the city with their foul practices. Yet, though they wore women's faces, their hands were murderous. They would approach with mincing steps, then suddenly become fighting men and whipping out, of their, so- out, and whipping out their swords from under their dyed cloaks they would run through every passerby. Just random killing. Have we not seen that? Do we not see that right even now? We're like, why would he kill her? Why would that happen? There is a trajectory that the godly are to take. And John, not in Revelation, but in his general epistle, calls it walking in the light. Are you walking in the light? And he also says, those who are not in Christ, they are walking in darkness. Are you walking in the light or are you walking in darkness? And how do you know the difference? You see, apart from the word of God, making a distinction between light and darkness just becomes a muddled affair. Good, we read in Isaiah, will be called evil. And evil will be called good. The eternal and objective means by which we know the difference, is the immutability of God's word. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will endure forever. It's a little wonder that churches have gone south, right up front, stop using the word of God. That's the trip. That's the journey. We are not to be thrown off course by the threats of man or by the glitter of the world. The churches receiving this letter are called to overcome, to persevere, 
and to stay the course. I mean, the Apostle Paul spoke so self-deprecatingly, right? I'm the chief of sinners, and I constantly do what I don't want to do, and on and on. But the one thing he did say about himself when he knew his ministry was coming to an end was this, I have kept the faith. I have finished the course. These seven churches were in danger of not doing that. And we are called to do that. And we are to be governed by the words of Christ. And we are to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are called to faith and faithfulness. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray, even as Tracy prayed earlier, that by your grace, by your wisdom, by your spirit, by your word, and by the power of Christ, we would see the tide changing course within the culture, the world in which we live. We know, Father, that regardless of the efforts of man, your kingdom is the one that will endure to the end because you promised to preserve it. We know that the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it, but we do pray for this current generation that we would not be numbered among those who would be called a wicked generation. And we know that the only means by which this comes to pass is by the fulfillment of the Great Commission, by trusting and believing in Jesus as our Savior and as our Master. We pray in His name. Amen.